I should probably start with an apology, Prabhu. If you're one of these people who is sick and tired of hearing Led Zeppelin on the radio. <laughs> we have you to blame for that? I have some responsibility for this. Our cars are one of the easiest places to see the connection between our lives and technology, and also how rapidly it's advancing. The automotive industry is exploding with new tech that will radically change the way we travel and commute. I have so many questions, and I'm thrilled to have automotive technology expert and a rock and roll radio legend, Fred Jacobs, with me today. Fred, welcome to Life Meet Tech. Thank you, Prabhu. It's really great to be here and be reconnected again with Michigan State, where for me, it really all started. So you started at MSU and then your career primarily started in radio. Is that correct? That's correct. I got the radio bug when I was at MSU. I actually came to the university to get my master's degree. And when they admitted me into the program, they said, hey, you're a good candidate for uh, a master's, but you have no TV and radio background. So you're going to have to take the freshman entry-level courses. Then I got to the Radio Lab studios and it was like, bing, love at first sight. Yeah. It was so cool. And so that's when I got the radio bug. And I quickly realized that I didn't really have the chops or the talent to be on the radio in a major market. I was probably kind of Muskegon quality, <laughs> if, if you will. Oh, come on, Fred, you're being modest. You're the reason we have classic rock radio stations. You developed the format. How do you figure out there was an audience for it? You know, content creators get better when they have data behind them, when they actually understand what people want. So the quick story was I was the program director of WRIF in Detroit, which was at the time and still is today a very mainstream rock station. We played everything from the Beatles all the way up to the new stuff. And in some of the research that we started to do, we began to sense our older audience wasn't always all that enamored with the newer music that we were playing. And so I started thinking, what if there was a format that just kind of specialized in the golden age of rock, kind of from the Beatles all the way up into the late 70s? And this was 1982 at the time. So that seemed to be a pretty comfortable stopping point. And so the format was born. And I left ABC and WRIF and started my own company. And I decided to go out and hawk this format. But nobody wanted to be that first classic rock station until I found a troubled station right outside of Lansing. And so I came in and we put the format on the air and that was really the break. And in short order, I picked up clients in Kansas City and Los Angeles and Detroit and Chicago and Washington, D.C., and so on. So it was a really cool thing to happen very early in my career. It's really been a fun ride. So how did you go from being a radio guy to sitting here talking to me about cars and tech? So to put it into context, Prabhu, I'm from Detroit. So when you grow up in the Motor City, cars are in your DNA. So even though I, I couldn't change the oil in my car, I love cars. 
And so I'd say about a dozen years ago, we started going out to the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas just to see what was going on with technology. And I remember the day we walked into the North Hall of the Las Vegas Convention Center, and it looked like the Detroit Auto Show. There were just all these car exhibits. There was Ford and Toyota and Mercedes-Benz and Cadillac, except nobody was looking under the hood. Everybody was looking at the dashboard and the new technology that the automakers were beginning to bake in to the dash. And so as a radio guy, that clearly got my interest because of course, radio is the primary entertainment in the car or was uh, uh, at that time. And so we started really digging into car technology and a few years down the road, no pun intended, uh, autonomous started becoming a major topic, smart cities, And applications, I think, that a lot of people don't understand with autonomous. The average person, when they think of self-driving cars, think of the look, ma, no hands kind of crazy thing. But the reality is, is that when you dig deeper, semi-trucks autonomously driving across country to deliver goods and services as part of that, transportation for special needs people or perhaps elderly people who can't drive any longer. I mean, to a great degree, that's part of the promise of autonomous cars. And then there's that whole smart cities piece and 5G is part of all of that. You know, there's a lot of talk about, well, what is 5G and when is it going to come online? But 5G is really the fuel or the blood or whatever you want to call it that will make smart cities powered by autonomous vehicles possible. So all of the automakers and many other companies are pouring billions into autonomous. I mean, it it looks like as we move into the mid or later part of this decade, we're going to see a lot more autonomous vehicles on the road. But I think we're still a good five years away, if not a little more, of autonomous really becoming a mainstream way to get around. So five years from now, what What does the experience look like, feel like inside the car for us drivers? So whether we're drivers or we're passengers, I don't think there's any question that there will be an opportunity to be able to do other things while we are in these vehicles in much the same way when we take a train uh, or a bus somewhere, public transportation, we're not really thinking about driving that vehicle. And I think to a great degree, the car, the van, the truck, whatever kind of vehicle we end up in will very much be an opportunity for us to either entertain, inform, work, have conversations, all those kinds of things. And more and more, it looks like every passenger in a vehicle will be able to be absorbed in their own little capsule of content and Activity. I mean, when you look at some of the more high-end vehicles now, each person in the vehicle has their own screen with their ability to be able to play games, watch movies, except for the driver, of course. But certainly the passengers, who, by the way, some automakers are referring to now as co-drivers. We always think of them as passengers, but they're beginning to think of them as co-drivers, which I think is really interesting. So clearly the entertainment environment and the information environment will be much more robust. And all of a sudden, that radio that used to be front and center in every vehicle in the country now is sharing that space with myriad other technology that is either built into the vehicle or you bring your smartphone or your tablet into the vehicle 
you connect and then you can pretty much do whatever you like. So there's a lot of change coming to the inside of the car. So driving a car is a quintessential American experience. Will we ever give up the notion of one car per person or per family? It's a great question. I think for people like ourselves who have been driving for a long time and who are still able to drive today, the thought of giving up that freedom to be able to get in the car and, you know, get a burger (laughs) or uh, just cruise around a little bit, it seems impossible to envision a future where we won't be able to do that. But young people don't have that same attachment to vehicles that we do. And that's one of the reasons why so many of them have delayed getting their driver's license. They like the idea of being schlepped around so that they can work their phones or do whatever they want to do. So I think it It will be a generational thing. I think you can envision the day where most cars on the road will, in fact, be autonomous and people will be happy about that. The other issue is when you actually think about the economics of owning a car, it's stupid. I mean, for the most part, it's wasteful. Our cars sit unattended 90% of the time. We have no real means of sharing them. They depreciate in value the moment that we drive them off the car lot. When you add in the cost of the vehicle, insurance, fuel, all that kind of stuff, it is absolutely a bad deal to own a car. It's just that we have been so accustomed to buying and leasing them that we just take for granted that, well, we're an adult now. This is something that we should do with our money. But today's 12-year-olds may not see it that way. And part of the autonomous experience is that most people will not own a vehicle. They will either use other vehicles on a almost Airbnb kind of like model, or there will be other services like Uber. Imagine Uber without drivers. That could actually be a a pleasant thing to imagine for some people. I hate to use the word game changer, but I don't think there's any question that if everything goes along the path that we're on now, it will definitely be a very different world a decade from now. But what about freedom and control? It's going to take a lot of trust and convincing to get people to give up their cars. How do you think we're going to negotiate this real social challenge? Well, I think like anything else, once we get the sense that, hey, this is safe, this is okay, this might actually be good for us, I think some of the fears begin to diminish and melt. I think it will take time. And clearly, every misfire, Every time somebody dies at the wheel of an autonomous vehicle, and it's going to happen, there will probably be a lot of publicity and attention scaring people away from jumping into that. I mean, it took a while for people to give up their horses to buy cars. Anytime there is a technological change, there's always going to be a certain amount of foot dragging and skepticism and all that. But you bring up the trust issue, and I think that does go to the heart of the issue. And just globally, maybe you could make the argument that people are less trusting today 
of institutions of all kinds. And so to the degree that that becomes an impediment to trusting the Federal Highway Safety Administration, who undoubtedly will have to put their stamp of approval on all these things. And do we trust Ford and Chrysler and Toyota and Honda and their test results? I think those are some really good questions that will need to be overcome. Absolutely. On the other hand, Americans are remarkably savvy about adopting conveniences. They've never shied away from anything that made life easier. So the pragmatism, the practicality that comes with the culture, right? As much as we like our control and our freedom, we're also very pragmatic and open to new ideas. So I think you're quite right. It's true. And I use my father as he's no longer with us. But every time a new time-saving gadget would come along, his first response was, what do I need this for? I don't need a garage door that opens and closes by pushing a button in the car until there's a torrential rainstorm and you realize just how convenient these things are. And there's a lot of technology that falls in that bucket where once people experience it, if that first experience is a positive one, I think that opens the door. Amazing. Anything that demands less work, we are you know, naturally drawn to it. So the remote control and think about the garage door opener, things that we take for granted these days. But these were technologies and they intersected with life in very interesting ways. So what about data? Even today, when we are sitting in the car and, and we are driving along, a lot of data is being collected and it's being used in useful ways. In some ways, it's used with or without our knowledge. Tell us a little bit more about this. Here's what I've learned. The OEMs, the car manufacturers, again, Chrysler and Hyundai and Subaru and all of them, they don't sell their cars to us. They sell their cars to car dealerships who in turn sell the vehicles to us. But once those vehicles roll off the assembly line and go to dealerships, the monetization for the OEMs comes to a halt. That's it. There is no recurring revenue for Ford and General Motors and Toyota. So the OEMs have been sitting there for decades wondering, is there any way that we could monetize our vehicles once they zoom off? And data is, in fact, the answer. They've got so much data, as you indicate, coming into the computers that are now being built into cars. And it's everything from what radio stations we're listening to. Are we listening to Spotify? Are we playing our personal music? Are we turning our windshield wipers on high? They've got all that data. And so what they're all trying to do now is figure out how to really get their arms around that data and come up with applications that will have value. So some of this comes back to what we were talking about earlier. It's not just the driver throwing off data, it is passengers or co-drivers in the car. But some of the ways already that you see car companies beginning to use the data is frankly to bypass media outlets and go directly to retail businesses. So an example would be General Motors cuts a deal with Taco Bell because the car knows through artificial intelligence when you're driving by a Taco Bell, the car knows where you are 
And most people are creatures of habit. I mean, we typically just drive to a handful of places back and forth every day. It's entirely predictable, which is really where AI becomes very valuable. And so the car knows every day we drive by the same Taco Bell and sometimes we go in and order the burrito supreme and sometimes we don't. But the car now is in a position to be able to message us on our phones or on the dashboard going, hey, you know what, Prabhu, you're a few minutes early today before you get to the university. We're going to fire you a coupon to your phone so you can get a burrito supreme for a buck off. Want to do it? Uh, Well, I'll probably say yes. Uh (laughs) Right, because the, the car begins to get you. And we see this same kind of technology happening on Facebook and when we are doing Google searches and all those kinds of things. But the car really has a unique ability because there are all these what we call windshield businesses out there. These are all the businesses that we drive past every day. And it's a perfectly convenient situation for the car to be able to recognize through a partnership, through our past behavior, there's an opportunity to be able to serve up a coupon and make a sale. So that's just one application of how they might be able to use data. There are entire departments inside every car company now and many other businesses. We did some work with one a couple of years ago, and it was fascinating to work with this team that does nothing but think about monetizing passengers. The car manufacturers are thinking about now, what is the value of a driver, a co-driver, a passenger, and how can they turn around and monetize that value with businesses that want to have that delivered? So you can see how the confluence of all of that can work together. And autonomous is part of that as well, because, of course, the car can take you to Taco Bell. <laughs> Absolutely. So talking of uh, Taco Bell, in your research, do you know why they dropped Fiesta potatoes? That was like my favorite thing. I mean, how could you possibly think of dropping Fiesta potatoes? It is so frustrating, isn't it, when you enjoy an aspect of a brand only to find that it disappears somehow and consumers are always just befuddled by those things and frustrated by them. And, you know, all I can tell you is it probably didn't test well in spite of the fact it was one of your favorite uh, guilty pleasures. So, yeah. sorry about that. <laughs> well, I have to find a substitute. But, Fred, the, one of the things that we like about our cars is the privacy. Nobody comes in. It's me, my own world of music and my thoughts and whatever I listen to. Now you're saying that to make a fast buck, companies are going to start throwing ads at me, even in my sacred private space. How is that going to work out? Well, we are used to having ads thrown at us pretty much wherever we are. So there's that. But you bring up a really interesting point, especially following this year of COVID, where so many people rediscovered the sanctity of being alone in a vehicle 
safe. I mean, the car could be the safest place that you can possibly be. I, I find it really interesting that so much of the COVID testing and now the COVID vaccine administration is happening with drive-throughs. I mean, we're so comfortable there. So I, I think to a degree, COVID has probably, oh, here it comes, uh, put the brakes a little bit on some of these autonomous developments, because I think we have perhaps gained a new sense of appreciation for our privacy, especially in the vehicle. Uh, The car is one of the few places on earth that we can be alone in our own thoughts, just kind of thinking about whatever we want to think about. That privacy angle that you talk about with the car is sacred for a lot of people, including me. I love my alone time in the car. It's important. So, Fred, I don't know if you watched this fun show on TV. It's called The Good Life, and it has Ted Danson in it and Kristen Bell. And one of the things they do is they take psychology and try to apply it to real life in very interesting, in a situational comedy framework. One of the things they talk about is this trolley problem. So the classic trolley problem is you're going down the track, there are five people here, but if you switch tracks, there is one person on the other track. What should you do? Take the five people out or go, you know, switch lanes. So this is very relevant for autonomous vehicles as well. Instead of the track, you're changing lanes and decisions have to be made during driving. Do you know what auto industries are thinking about this and how are they building in these decision rules into autonomous vehicles? It's very complex. And you really hit on that very well. I mean, 90% of what an autonomous car has to do is really simple. Conditions are perfect. It's just a matter of slowing down, speeding up, hitting the brakes at the right time. But it's really simple. And more than 90% of the time, the car is actually a much safer driver than we are. But it's that small percentage of situations where things can get a little bit wiggy. And that's exactly what you're referring to in your question. Those moments where the sun breaks through, you know, blinding the camera momentarily, or a dog runs out into the middle of the road. I mean, those unanticipated things that happen. And the car has to make a choice. The technology has to make a choice, just like we do as people, whereas you and I, Maybe we make the right decisions to slam on the brake. Maybe we make the right decision to swerve into the other lane. It's all very iffy. And clearly, this is the secret sauce with autonomous, giving the vehicle the ability to be able to make the right decision at the right moment in time. As you say, there are choices that need to be made. And I think one of those existential questions is, will the car make the right choices whatever the right choices are. I mean, the right choice for you and the right choice for me might be two different things as well. So it's complicated. It is complicated. It is complicated. Fred, have you driven a Tesla? I have driven in a Tesla. So I have not driven one, but I have driven in one. Yeah, I was blown away by the experience. It was just such an amazing amazing experience. Yeah, it just reads your mind. But the Tesla is going to set you back quite a bit, $35,000, $40,000 for an entry-level model. With autonomous vehicles, what happens to the pocketbook? Can anyone afford to buy a self-driving car in the future? So part of it, I think, is that 
this mindset of you have to own a vehicle will begin to erode over time and you will be comfortable with car services that take you around. But that doesn't really address the question of depreciation and affordability and all of those things. I mean, we unfortunately are conditioned to buying a new vehicle and the moment we drive it off the dealer lot, it, it what, drops 20% value, something, something like that. But particularly with electrification, which we haven't talked about, the idea is that cars are now updatable. So instead of you buying a 2017 vehicle and a year or two down the road, all of a sudden it is dated and outmoded because new technology has replaced the technology that was built into your vehicle in the first place, the car company or anybody else ultimately can send down software updates in the same way that our phone is updated or our computers are updated. And so the thinking is, is that when our vehicles are actually updatable, they will not lose value like they do now as they become outmoded. So I think the answer to the question is that there are a lot of interesting forces at play here in terms of, will you even want to own a vehicle? And if the answer is yes, I will, there's a good chance that the price of vehicles will in fact stabilize if not go down as a result of the software updating which, you know, back to your Tesla question, those software updates are coming now about once a month, not dissimilar to what Apple or Android would send down with your phone. Another trend is how technology usually makes things more affordable. When the phone came or computers first came, it was not easy for people to buy one. But affordability is an important value in much of new technologies. And I think as we scale up, costs will come down. So I don't know if price itself would be the key factor. It wouldn't be the determining factor, I, I presume. It'll be other aspects such as control and convenience and what people expect out of lifestyles and so on. Fred, with all the data that's being generated from cars, there is potential for abuse and invasion of privacy. What are your thoughts on that? It's a really gnarly question, Prabhu. I mean, Privacy issues are becoming more and more prevalent with every technological step that we take, as we know. I mean, it was an eye-opener that Facebook was collecting all this data on us and selling it to marketers to better target us. I mean, a lot of people actually felt that Facebook was just offering this platform up so we could post pictures of dogs playing poker and at high school reunion, but, but there's a cost to all of this. And clearly one of the lessons is that we need to do a better job as consumers of understanding where we're giving up our privacy and where we aren't. I mean, how many of us really read terms and conditions and instead just go, ah, I'm clicking submit because I really want to buy this car. So the car makers and all other entities now, I think, are sensitive to this, but clearly they want to open up the permissions as much as they absolutely can. So it really does, I think, fall on the shoulder of consumers to decide to a great degree how they're going to do that. As it pertains to driving safety, all the insurance companies now have safe driving programs and safe driving apps where if you opt in, your phone, the car, 
monitors your driving. And if you drive carefully and you don't lead foot it and you're not pounding on the brakes all the time, uh, it'll drive your rate slower. And for some people, that clearly is going to be an incentive to drive more carefully. And that works for both us, other drivers, and the insurance companies themselves. But not everybody is going to opt in for that kind of program. And so there's where that fine line exists between what they collect, what we approve, how we're aware of the permissions that we give up. We clearly have to become better consumers all the way across the spectrum. No doubt about that. What are other areas in which data can really help us drive more safely and and keep us safer on the roads? Well, clearly the idea that vehicles have the ability now to be able to talk to other vehicles, whether it's just other passenger cars or ambulances, if there is a crime situation, a natural disaster. I mean, all the things now that we just don't even think about. You, you're just driving along and maybe Waze or Google Maps or the radio informs you that something is going on a quarter mile ahead, but the car having the ability to be able to keep you safe, keep you away, keep you informed. And it's all part of what they call the internet of things. That's also in that whole concept of smart cities. Vehicles being able to talk to other connected entities, including your home, becomes really important. And we're really seeing the effects of devices talking to other devices, whether it's our Amazon Alexas talking to our lighting systems or our garages or our window shades or any of those kinds of things. So the future is very much this interconnected ecosystem and the car becomes just another element of that. And vehicle-to-vehicle communication, that could be used by police and law enforcement to understand exactly the dynamics on the road. If there is an accident, an investigation becomes a cinch then, right? Because the data is already captured. It's a lot easier. And I mean, look, you see it on all the cop shows now. The first thing they do whenever there's a crime is they'll check to see if there are cameras in the area that, that they can go back and monitor the tape. I mean, it's one thing to knock on 100 doors to see if anybody saw or heard anything, but it's another thing to actually have a camera capturing the entire event. And we've seen the result of that with law enforcement having to wear body cameras and that type of thing. And clearly the number of cameras that are going to be on our vehicles will only continue to multiply as different stages of autonomous go into effect. I think for everything technology brings to our lives, it also threatens us in certain ways. Technology is neither good nor evil, but there are aspects of it that have a lot of repercussions and we have to figure out a way to live with that, as does our governance. Anytime you see a Zuckerberg or a Bezos sit down in front of Congress and you see oftentimes how ill-equipped our representatives are to ask them good questions that really get to the heart of an issue or a problem, it's a little scary because we're, we're going to need our representatives to protect us in a lot of different ways. And maybe they're not always as knowledgeable as they should be. It's a tough road to walk. So Fred, thank you so much. I truly appreciate you taking time to join us today on Life Meet Tech. I've really enjoyed it. It was fun chatting with you. 
Life Meet Tech is presented by WKAR in association with the College of Communication, Arts and Sciences at Michigan State University. Executive producer, Melanie Paul. Audio engineer, Drew Hill, and hosted by me, Prabhu David. Special thanks to my guest, Fred Jacobs. Please subscribe wherever you're listening right now so you don't miss an episode. And I'll see you next time on Life Meet Tech.